0: Is there anything? I have a follow-up question, but is there anything that any of the panelists would like to just um, pursue uh, in what's
1: been said? I try to be brief, and uh, I still will be. But if one looks at who have, who are the people who consider themselves good Christians, you start with the slaveholder who went to church regularly and regularly beat his slave you look at the architects of apartheid in South Africa who whose whose policies were sanctioned by the church they saw themselves as good christians and so we have to be very careful about who the good christians are because there are all sorts of people claiming to be a good christian now when you ask that question of many people they begin to talk about the 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 private virtues that are really parochial uh, to their faith, they rarely talk about the public values that are a part of our constitution. I mean, they rarely talk about justice. They try to—they don't seek to establish justice. That's not in their mind, and that's a, a moral imperative that's throughout the Old Testament. Uh, they rarely talk about working and helping the poor, and there are almost 2,000 references to the poor in the New Testament. And so my idea of a good Christian is the person who is willing to take his faith or her faith in the public life in order to achieve those things for which Christianity stands. Now, it's nice if in their personal life they deal with uh, the private virtues. That's fine. My problem is, is that many of these people who call themselves good Christians try to translate the private virtues of their faith into the public values of the nation state. And that's the problem. And those are the people who we generally think of who stand up in public life and say, I'm a Christian. The people who are dealing and trafficking in the microethics of their parochial faith. I'm much more interested in what I found in the Bible having to do with what Reinhard Niebuhr talked about as the the values of our aggregate existence as opposed to our personal existence only.
0: Let me try to um, pick up on that. Um, One of the things that um, the various comments might share, um, although share not necessarily by agreeing with, um, is some sense of discomfort with good as a descriptor of a person or a claim that a person makes about themselves, I am a good Christian. Uh, And um, the translation between that self-description and a public political agenda, uh, an attempt potentially, um, as Ambassador Joseph has just said, to translate what are understood to be private virtues into public law. Now, we might not all agree on that, but that's one way of thinking of the language of the good. Um, Another is to then shift from the good person to the good. Um, uh, the good as a public um, property. The good as something to work for um, in the public arena. Um, as an open question to for anyone to pick up on, but I, I might, Sam, begin with, with you. Um, um, if we might have different degrees of comfort or hesitation around the attempt to translate personal goodness, whatever we understand that to be, into public law. Um, What is your sense of um, the importance or the hesitations or the comfort that we have, should or or should not have in translating a sense of the public good that emerges from, as you describe it, an, an overwhelming abundance of what is good and I want to take the goodness of love into law. Um, Another way to put that, um, one of the biblical imperatives is to love your enemy. That is a public good, or is that a private good? Um, Is that type of command a project for society, for the citizenry, for the electorate? What shape might it take? And should it be law to love your enemy? Um, And finally, maybe just to get back to Jay's question, in the current context, what does that mean? Uh, We are a nation at war. Um, The churches uh, and faith communities across the nation have disagreed on the war. Uh, But we are a nation uh, in the midst of a war. Um, What might that mean um, concretely? So so Sam, with those simple questions if you'd resolve those for us. (laughs) Um, uh, And uh, you've got 90 seconds. Uh,
2: Okay, I'll take on these and I'll leave the panel to deal with some of the other ones. Yeah, okay. Um, I think, uh, if I may speak as a non American, um, I think this is a nation that has an extraordinary faith in the possibility of resolving conflict through legislation and the law court uh, the the attorney is a is a, a pivotal figure in American society uh, because it's such a, a profoundly and widely held belief that there can be you know the, the, the Constitution uh, I- if you like it, it can be a means of grace to use a theological term um, I I tend to feel that there are there are broadly two strands in American religious history. The one that regards the Bible as a kind of constitution and the other that regards the constitution as a Bible. And I find both of those quite difficult to deal with. Uh, the one that regards the Bible as a constitution is very inclined to try to, to make people behave as Christians whether they want to be Christians or not. I think that is always a disaster. It's a disaster for them, but it's also a disaster for Christianity. I just don't think Christianity is something that can be legislated. However, the view that sees the Constitution as the Bible, uh, I think, tends to to go down the line of assuming that all disputes can be resolved uh, through the law. Uh, I think if we look at the greatest figures of uh, of American history, uh, of whom, you know, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would be the most obvious example, their genius has tended to to lie in two places. First of all, they've been able to harmonize these two strands in American history, uh, and, and therefore draw support from both traditions but also they've been able to embody something that went further than any law could achieve. They've been able to believe, whether you call it the beloved community or, or whatever term you call it, they've been able to, to build a community that shows what the love of God can do. Uh, and it's not as if that community could exist without law. Uh, clearly, you know, the civil rights legislation needed to be passed. But the civil rights legislation named the beginning of what needed to be done, not the conclusion, climax of what needed to be done. Um, It was only those communities that witnessed to something that could not be legislated, but could only be lived in the beyond that's named by love. I mean, love has to name a beyond. It can't name a minimum. Uh, And it's people like Martin Luther King who, who, who demonstrated that beyond. Now, Love your enemies is a beyond, (laughs) no doubt about it. That's not a minimum. You know, that's that's a beyond. And it's it's probably the most significant of Jesus' injunctions that makes it difficult for Christians to hold public office for a long period of time. Because if you don't believe, and I don't believe, that that you can legislate uh, Christianity, you can only embody it and witness to it. Um, it you can't make people love their enemies, uh, and 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 uh, and so that that's why it's extremely difficult to, to, to run things as a Christian, because uh, because because it is very difficult to persuade <laughs> 300 million people, uh, you know, to, to love a nation that 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 that, uh, that they've just invaded. So I think I've answered three and a half of the 14 questions.
1: But, but you use love
2: in, in a very different way. And let's get back to that later after
1: other people have talked about
0: it. Finish your thought, please. And
1: yeah, then, I mean, um, I, I uh, organized a local civil rights movement in Tuscaloosa, Alabama in the 1960s and talked regularly about loving our enemies. And the concrete manifestation of what we had in mind was respect for the humanity of the adversary. We weren't talking about a sort of romantic attachment or affection, and people got confused. And so at one point, we started using the word uh, justice rather than loving the enemy. But when Martin Luther King talked about loving the enemy, he didn't necessarily mean liking the enemy. He meant respecting the humanity of the adversary even though you opposed vehemently the actions of the adversary. And you can't legislate Christianity, you can't even legislate morality, but you can legislate limits to the individual's behavior. And that's what I'm interested in, is limiting the behavior of individuals so that it's not destructive of other individuals. And uh, we used to have those arguments in the 60s about whether you could legislate morality, and that's a a non starter. But you certainly can limit the behavior, and in some ways, you can require certain behaviors. And that's the sort of minimalist approach to whether or not uh, what it means to do the good. But certainly, that is possible to limit behavior and to induce certain kinds of behavior.
3: Pick up on something that uh, you both said because I I think we agree, but we're using different, we would use different terms. I would agree with Sam that you can't legislate Christianity, but that's because, at least for me, the essence of Christianity has to do with a personal relationship with God mediated by Jesus Christ. And that is a, that exists in a spiritual domain that is, that, that cannot be legislated and you cannot coerce someone into a saving faith and you shouldn't, although sadly through the history of the church, the church has often tried to do that through physical coercion, but it, it doesn't work. On the other hand, I would say you absolutely can and do legislate morality. I would say almost every law, you show me a law that doesn't have a moral claim in it um, and uh, and I'll buy you a cup of coffee. I think every single uh, <laughs> I think every single law has embedded within it a moral claim. And I think that's what you mean when you're talking about limits on behavior. There's a a moral um, claim on that. And and I'm hoping that my neighbor who lives in our neighborhood wants legislation of that kind of morality at at a minimum. But that's just one of the mistakes I think that that this discussion can sometimes fall into. Another one is the one that you alluded to, Ambassador, uh, when and and that's the mistake, it's the sin of blasphemy, which is to attach, uh, use the Lord's name in vain, by which, in this context, it would be attaching the Lord's name to a political claim or a political platform or political stance that the Lord has not ruled on. I, and I I can remember when this hit me in the face. It was in the 70s. Uh, and and the, one of the planks of the moral majority was if you recall this, was uh, returning the Panama Canal. I mean, not returning the Panama Canal. And I, I thought, well, I'm pretty sure that there is not a clear biblical mandate, one way or the other, on that question. We can debate the wisdom of returning the Panama Canal or not, but but to make that, to attach God's name to that policy is blasphemy. Uh, but I would say that, uh, and that it's not a sin limited on the right. I would say that uh, most of Jim Wallace's book is blasphemy uh, because he attaches, it's, the title is Blasphemous, God's Politics, and then what he generates is essentially a democratic platform. Uh, that scares me a, as blasphemous on either side. And I say it's a sin that both right and left Christians fall into. The solution, it strikes me, uh, the one that I come up to, come up with, is holding principles tightly and holding policies lightly. And I suspect that we would reach agreement across our various uh, Christian backgrounds on principles. And where we would differ if we did differ would be on what is the best policy to implement that. And I would say we can argue vigorously about the policy, but that's an argument about policy, not an argument, not a theological argument at the principles that Christians should be able to reach a consensus at the level of principle, caring for the least of these would be a principle. What does that mean for the tax code? That's a policy question. Um, now, the tough question you asked is about loving your enemy, but I've run out of time, so I'll give that to uh,
0: <laughs> Jay, if, you, if you'd like to weigh in on of this. I'm not
4: sure I have much to add except that when you phrase the question, um, something inside of me recoiled not in fear or whatever, but just thinking historically, that from the founding, one of the the notions in classical republicanism was the notion of civic virtue, of a virtuous citizen, you know. But encapsulated within that was that only some citizens were virtuous, you know, and that property was a criterion in order to be a virtuous citizen, and that some people in this society were classified as as property. And so there's been so much in our political history where the justification using Christianity, using the Bible as a justification for doing very, very bad things to other people. I mean, during segregation, I mean, um, Jerry Falwell, um, uh, Pat Robertson all used the Bible to justify the segregation of blacks. Now, they recanted on that, but still, during that period, it was used. And there's been so many things where we have used Christianity as the basis and the reason for just doing horrible things in in, in the name of democracy or whatever. So that I just, I like the barrier that people are trying to break down, but I like the barrier that exists between my own personal religion and my ability to impose my own personal religious beliefs on the society writ large. Because the reality is that while we are here as Christians, we have a nation that is very pluralistic in terms of of the various um, faith traditions. And so I think that we need to be cognizant of there's lots of other people in this society that also have to obey the laws that are put in place. I
0: have a follow-up on that, Mm -hmm. let Jay.
5: I mean, I really don't have too much to add. I mean, I'm just finding the conversation quite stimulating in many ways. Um, Part part of what we're, I think, dealing with is what what Paula alluded to. We're we're dealing with the legacies of a quite tragic history, Um, a history in which Claims to what it means to be a Christian have have thoroughly intermingled themselves with what it means to be a citizen. Mm -hmm. Claims to what it means to be the church have thoroughly intermingled themselves with claims to what it means to be the nation. Um, And inside of the intermingling, have been positioning of peoples in certain positions within the nation and then baptizing that through the claims that this is all sanctioned by God. There's a long history to this, a history wrapped up in the language of the good, actually, Mm -hmm. um, and the true and the beautiful. And so part of what we're, we're struggling with is how to exist beyond the ugly history when the vestiges of the history is precisely what we exist within. These are not easy questions to, un- to unravel, easy answers to come up to these hard questions. But I think, as a, as a theologian, I think that the, 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 the most important thing that the Christian theologian must do is not hide the blood-stained hands. Own what has happened. We must... Th- there's a sense in which Christians have not... I mean, let's think about the issue of slavery for a second. This country is founded on plantation labor, labor in black bodies. And this was all baptized and sanctified with Christian language. There's a sense in which we as a nation have never been able, one, to look at that history and begin to name it for what it is, and number two, even more profoundly, we haven't been able to look at it and name it for the Christian problem that it was. We can't begin to imagine How to move forward in terms of the relationship between Christianity and the political until we begin to look at that history for what it is. And so I think that the barrier that has gone up, in some respects, is a very important barrier because you need that barrier until people can start telling some truth.
3: But wouldn't you say that? I agree with everything you said, I think, but wouldn't, but but I think it's incomplete because isn't it also the case that uh, it was a, it was the dogmatism of of a Wilberforce who believed very much that he was on a mission from God and he was not going to follow Professor McLean's keep your personal religion out of it. He imposed his personal religion onto. Uh, the Parliament and 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 was effective at ending the the slave trade as a, as a consequence of it and the abolitionists wrapped their opposition to slavery in the in biblical language and and of, and of course Dr King wrapped the civil his civil rights message it wasn't was suffused with imposing Christian morality onto. A society that had fallen so far short mm-hmm. of it. So it strikes me that um, that the problem is even more rich than you described it, because you have you have people on both sides, and and now with the benefit of history, we we're able to say clearly who was the right, and we're grateful for the Wilberforces, we're grateful for the kings, mm-hmm. um, but what they were doing was some of the things that that the panel has problematized.
4: Using it. King wasn't imposing his Christian values on a broader society. He was using his own Christianity as a a method um, um, to kind of get people to see the contradictions in their behavior. He wasn't saying that everybody in the United States had to be a Christian like he was. It was that he felt that how he used his Christianity was to get people to see the contradictions in what they believed for themselves and how they then treated another group of people. So, um, I don't know. I just, I just, yeah. yeah.
1: It's important to keep in mind that, that King and the rest of the folks who were involved in the 60s were using persuasion, not moral pronouncements, as if there was some authority for the parochial dogma again, that what they were appealing to, what we were appealing to, were the values affirmed by the nation. And those values came out of the Constitution. And we spoke regularly about the preamble to the Constitution, which stated those values. Now, you can say that those values had that genesis in the Abrahamic faiths, but, but they were in the values stated in the preamble to the Constitution. And so, King wasn't fighting for whether or not the Ten Commandments ought to be in, in the courthouse. He was fighting for justice. And that, it <laughs> seems to me, if there is anything about which there should be agreement, is that the moral imperative of Christianity There, that is central is that of justice. And so when you say it was personal faith, it was a personal faith that might have led him there, but he wasn't trying to convert other people to his personal faith. He was trying to persuade them to follow the values they proclaimed and affirmed in the Constitution under which we all lived. And and it's important to make that distinction because I hear far too many people who go back to the Civil Rights Movement of the 60s and say, well, you see, we're doing what they did. Mm -hmm. No, no, when we organized the Civil Rights Movement in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, there were four of us and all of us were ministers. We were probably all over the map on private virtues in terms of what we believe. We were from different denominations. We were from different traditions. But the one thing on which we could agree were the values affirmed by the nation state. And we agreed on that, and that's what we were calling for. Now, we might have been led out there by our personal faith, but we weren't trying to have people adapt to our personal faith. We were saying, live by your own values, as they are stated in the preamble to the Constitution. And it's important to make that distinction, because too many people get confused, and they try to look back and say, well, what we are doing is the same what." King did in the nineteen sixties. That's not true.
4: And William Wilberforce, I mean, just I mean, that was a long I mean, it wasn't like you know, Wilberforce just got up and all of a sudden told England, okay, you know, we're not gonna have slavery anymore. I mean, that was a long process of getting people to come to see his way of thinking. And I'm sure was it ten years, fifteen years, however long it took Wilberforce you know, to get Parliament Mm -hmm. to take that position. So it wasn't like he had the ability to impose. He really had to kind of bring people along to use the persuasion that this was the right thing for England to do. I
5: mean, in many ways, I mean, I mean, with with 90 seconds, I did the best I could. Um, But, I mean, in in many ways, the the, the other side to... um, Another way in, into what a king is about or what a Wilberforce may be about is to, to think about it this way. What they understood was that Christianity, they understood that there had to be, there was not a thoroughgoing identity between what they took themselves to be as a Christian and what the nation state told them what it meant for them to be a citizen. And therefore, who couldn't who couldn't be a citizen? And because they didn't have a thoroughgoing identity between the two, the space between the two was precisely the space of their leverage to speak back to the nation. If their Christianity is completely identical with what it means for them to be a citizen of whatever polity they're in, they have, on religious grounds, no leverage to speak back because there's a thoroughgoing identity. So on some level, they had found a way to muscle some elbow room between their faith convictions and the ways in which their faith convictions were being absorbed back into the nation. And it's at that moment that you have the possibilities to sort of see how faith can actually speak back to the country and to press the country in ways that it may need to be pressed, right upon the very using the very term that the nation may want to absorb back in. It will want to absorb the Christian language back in, and so it finds ways by giving this elbow room to actually take that language and speak back to the nation. Now what this ultimately means then is that if we're thinking within a Christian horizon, the, the, the figure at the center of Christianity then, the man Jesus of Nazareth, cannot just be the figure who embodies the premier citizen. This figure is a figure who, doesn't, who can actually go against the grain of the social order. He doesn't have to go with the social order. And they found a the Christianity a way to be religious that didn't go with the social order. But when it needed to, it knew how to go against the grain of the social order. The problem with the thoroughgoing identity between Christianity and the nation is that there's only one direction with the social order. And that, sadly, has been the history, really, of modern coloniality because we do know that that lifted off as a Christian project.
2: Yeah, to to use three fairly conventional um, theological terms, uh, prophet, priest, and king, um, it seems to me the principal job of the church is to be a priest, is to embody in its life what God's love can can do. Uh, And that does mean forming coalitions with people outside the circle of faith uh, of a provisional nature, uh, endless constant coalitions of that kind uh, over more or less short-term goals. Um, It is obviously called to be a prophet, and we've been talking about the ways in which Martin Luther King was a a prophet, uh, and others have been been prophets, pointing to features not only in the the church's tradition, but in the case of the United States and the Constitution of the United States, holding people to account. Um, for, for commitments they have publicly already made, which is largely what the civil rights movement was about. Um, the trouble comes when the when the church tries to be a king, uh, when the church assumes its role is to chair the meeting. Um, you know, everyone remembers what Nelson Mandela did before he was president, and nobody really remembers quite what he did after he became president, quite in the same way, because it was in a sense the the transformation of South Africa took place to the point where it came for him to be president. Uh, You know, uh, I'd be interested to hear Jay's reflections about the current, you know, electoral buildup, about what it would mean for Obama to be elected president vis-a-vis what Obama's program as president might be and whether those might be two quite distinct things. Um, The church has, over the centuries, over and over again, tied itself in knots when it came to the role of king Uh, it seems to me it's most at home in the roles of prophet and priest and from time to time when it's assumed the role of king rather than being offered it, that seems to me rather different when it's been invited to become king for a provisional time, there may be a role there, but when it's decided it was going to grab the reins and become king uh, I think its record is derisory
1: I just Hate to add footnotes every time you speak, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can't let that comment about Nelson Mandela us knowing what he did before he became president and not knowing what he did once he became president. I mean, his focus on reconciliation mm-hmm. was so central to what he did once he became president that I think almost anyone who knows anything about Mandela knows that he was a proponent of reconciliation. And I could tell you lots of other things, but when I think of Mandela, uh, of course, I was very involved in the anti apartheid movement for many, many years. But when I think of Mandela, I think of that forgiving spirit, that force for reconciliation is what he did after he became President.
2: But that's But that's a very different notion. I mean, that's more to the kind of politics I was talking about at the beginning. That's the politics of abundance. It's not associated with the conventional kind of political program uh, that I was referring to, but uh, that's, I, I take, that, I take that, that more than footnote, that, that uh, whole paragraph uh, inserted <laughs> at the beginning.
0: <laughs> we um, have some time, and I'd like to um, be able to invite questions from the audience. Um, one thing that I, I might simply add a, as a comment is, um, as someone who studies language, um, to think about Uh, the ways in which, again, what seems to be cross-referenced in the panel um, are a series of figures that are not necessarily those of the political contract, um, but that in different ways people understand to emerge from this attempt to understand what it means to be a person of religious conviction, specifically a Christian conviction, and then more specifically still a faith community and a tradition within that, um, that enrich or expand the vocabulary. One is love. Another, um, Jay, that I understand to um, potentially be uh, the background of your question about um, not losing sight of the bloody hands is repentance Mm -hmm. um, or reparation, Um, uh, Ambassador Joseph, um, reconciliation um, or a certain kind of um, uh, something stronger than toleration. And so maybe I just leave that I think that uh, another thing that I understand to be common in many of the comments is that what is often taken to be an opposition between belonging to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man um, might perhaps, if if I hear different things that people are saying, be understood to be a very complicated complementarity. Uh, One of the scholars whose work I read, Paul Gilroy, who's written about um, black expressive cultures in and around the Atlantic world and, and who's trying to think specifically about what he understands to be central to the expressive cultures of enslaved persons in the US and uh, is what he calls the politics of fulfillment and the politics of transfiguration. The politics of fulfillment is a call upon the law to fulfill its fundamental claims for the constitution to be true for all of its citizens, to fulfill a basic contract of dignity and decency and enfranchisement, but not to end there to imagine that in addition to fulfilling the fundamental requirements and obligations of the law, the world can be transfigured, it can be transformed, it can be made larger. And that largeness is not necessarily one that can be translated into law, um, but that can be brought into the public arena um, when we uh, draw on languages like those of love or repentance. Uh, So just that editorial comment to give you um, uh, a moment to pose questions. So we have time, we have about half an hour. Uh, If you have a question, if you could just um, come up to the microphone um, and ask it. Uh, They may be esoteric, they may also be quite practical. One of the questions that the organizers have asked us to think about is at a a very fundamental level uh, for students um, uh, who are entertaining um, the possibility of entering public service as you move on from Duke, Um, whether in elected office, in administrative position, in a legal position, but public office. Um, and wish to think about doing so in a way that you understand to be faithful to your religious conviction, what advice do people have? What are the challenges? Um, What experiences uh, do the panelists have that they might be able to draw on simply to, to? how
3: can we get a job in Washington?
0: Is okay? <laughs> so, and what I'll do, please, if you would keep your questions relatively concise, I apologize that I haven't been. Um, <laughs> That'll leave
3: more time for
6: him to moderate, is
0: it? Uh, And that way we'll get through as many as we can, but we will need to conclude uh, at half past year.
6: Hi. Um, I want to ask a related question. Is this Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, A related question being, can a non-Christian or a non-religious person be a good president? And there was a survey conducted, uh, I don't know, recently or a few years ago, and most Americans responded no. In fact, they would rather elect a woman, a black person, even a gay person as a president over an atheist. And I think this has something to do with the very tight coupling between morality and the Judeo-Christian tradition in American society. Um, where most, most Americans feel that a non-religious person wouldn't be able to share their value system or wouldn't be a good person. So um, what are some ways that we can decouple this exclusive association between morality and the Judeo-Christian tradition? And um, what are some possible benefits that this decoupling could bring?
1: Well, the Dalai Lama and uh, his book, Ethics for the New Millennium, argues that one does not have to be religious in order to be moral. And I won't go through his whole argument. There are other religious leaders who've made the same argument. As for me, uh, Christianity is an existence. Uh, Kierkegaard uh, defined it that way. Uh, And in my existence, I need some form of transcendence uh, in order to follow through on the moral imperatives that drive me. But I would never argue that that has to be true of everyone else. I would say, for me, I I need a context of transcendence for my value system. But I I take very seriously what the Dalai Lama says uh, about that not necessarily being a requirement.
2: I go this one. Absolutely, a non-Christian can be a good president. Um, uh, quite possibly a better president than than uh, many of the people that keep Paula awake at night. Um, I and that's because I see a, a being president as, as basically chairing a meeting called America. I see it uh, rather than as being given four years to force through the neck of the bottle your oversized political agenda. Uh, If you see it as chairing the meeting, in other words, bringing bringing out of America all all that's good in America and allowing that to flourish, if you see that as what the job of the President is, uh, then absolutely a non-Christian can do that fantastically well. However, the one thing I would ask of that non-Christian is that they put on the table where they want to see this country going. Uh, that's to say that what they see is the telos, to use the sort of philosophical jargon. What is, what is the destiny of America? Um, not, as one of the candidates said in the presidential debate, to be the greatest country the world has ever seen. I mean, to me, that's garbage. <laughs> you know, that means nothing uh, other than arrogance. Uh, and uh, an inflated sense of self-worth. Uh, give us some details about, about where you want this country to go. Put that on the table, uh, and then chair the meeting. And by all means, a non-Christian can do that just as well as any Christian can do.
3: i I'll, I'll answer this as a political scientist, and that is that if you are running for President and you're using words like telos, you're not going to get elected. And that's the same problem that atheists have. I think it's a practical problem. It's not. Could they chair the meeting? Well, yes, of course they they could. And I know uh, atheists who have been effective in policymaking positions and, and can understand a policy issue and can craft good solutions, etc. But part of of being president is getting elected president. And to get elected president, you have to convince a majority of Americans that you understand their life and you can make. Their life better, dealing with the, the things that make it better, improving those, and identifying the things that make it worse and minimizing those. Identifying with the average American, and that's the challenge that an atheist. You said not just a non-Christian, but an atheist. So someone like uh, a um, Lieberman, who's a uh, uh, f- observant um, a Jew, would have w- would be able to connect to. Um, evangelicals to uh, people of a variety of faith traditions. But you asked about atheists specifically. It would be more challenging for an atheist to convince a majority of Americans that she or he really understood them, respected them, did not look down on them, was not patronizing to them for their uh, foolish uh, <coughs> religious beliefs. And that's the challenge. It would be getting elected, I think, more so than being President.
2: If so we can't
6: why is that? I mean, they don't have that problem in, like, Australia or France. Why is this problem peculiar to America?
3: Because America is a high, again, speaking as a political scientist, has a very high levels of religiosity. It's probably the highest level of religiosity in the Western world. It's a, a fact of, you know, it's a social fact.
5: But is it, is it tied as well to
3: the, the, the sort of um,
5: logic that went into the founding of the nation, right? I mean, there's a sense in which the nation... I mean, we have certain metaphors that we can conjure up to to talk about the ways in which the nation was founded. Um, It was founded to be a city on a hill. Um, It was founded to be um, the New Jerusalem. Um, This this constellation of religious and particularly um, Christian terminology, Judeo-Christian terminology, is part of the inner architecture of how the nation itself, this particular nation, got going. And then that's what ties into, I think, some of the other things that are going on here. So part of what I think um, a person who um, would be an atheist would be contending with in this country is narrating themselves Mm -hmm. inside of the very fabric. my, My term here was the inner architecture, the way in which the imaginary of the country has historically functioned. The bigger story. The, the, one might say the bigger narrative, into which um, Americans seen, see themselves and interpret themselves, interpolate themselves into.
4: But there's also, as a political scientist, the very real political dynamic about Madeleine, Mar- Madeleine Murray O'Hara that went to court, that removed prayers from schools you know, as unconstitutional. Um, and so there was a series of court cases that were filed by atheists to deal with under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, um, in God we trust on the coins. So it's not like the United States has not dealt with atheists as all. But the but the context in which the United States has dealt with atheists has been the challenge to kind of the underpinnings of, of the country. So that it would be very difficult, given that past history and the lingering um, Angst among some populations about if we, you know, if they didn't take prayer out of schools, we wouldn't have this problem now. I mean, so there's be a whole other set of issues that would coalesce around that, that would really prevent someone from being elected. I mean, my, I guess my my advice would be, you know, just choose a religion and say that's what you are. And, you know? <laughs> like Dwight Eisenhower, right? <laughs> yeah,
3: or what he did. Dwight Eisenhower, yeah. Yeah.
1: And even Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
7: <laughs> um, I think uh, probably most of us can agree that uh, it's impossible or near impossible to fit uh, God into say uh, under say a, a conservative or a liberal paradigm. Um, and I'm curious as to looking forward to the November elections, um, in which at least how I see it, uh, neither candidate or both candidates uh, espouse ideals I think that are fundamentally and diametrically opposed. Uh, to the teachings of Jesus Christ uh, I'm curious as to how you all think uh, that we as Christians can vote uh, kind of with a clear conscience uh, when I guess in a sense uh, you're kind of always making a concession
4: I'm, I mean I guess I guess this comes to definitional again in terms of maybe maybe your definition of what a christian is and their ability to vote for one of the other candidate may differ from what and what you may see as a conflict is something that i might not see as a conflict at all so i'm you
1: know. yeah i I'm, I'm i'm sort of astounded so when you say both candidates uh, espouse positions that are antithetical to what uh, jesus christ was did i understand you correctly
0: would, would, uh, you, would you like to just clarify just uh, what your sense, what, what your, what it is that is helping helping you frame the question enough?
7: Certainly, yeah. I, I think there, uh, I think there are elements of each candidate's platform um, that uh, that that are that aren't in line uh, with what uh, with what Jesus would have to say on uh, on said issue.
1: Well, Jesus lived in a very different time. I don't know how it is that you know what Jesus would have done or said or positions he would have taken in these times I I know the the vision he had I know the basic values he had but when it comes to specific positions on political issues I I don't know and uh, I've been around a long time trying to discern what Jesus means to me and, 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 and how I ought to live out my Christianity but I, I, I'm just trying to think of it. What is it that Barack Obama says in his platform that is antithetical to Christianity when he is a Christian? Now, there are some things he says in his platform that may be antithetical to some Christians, as apartheid was antithetical to me as a Christian, and Christian was saying. But to say that that's what, it's antithetical to what Jesus taught is a very, very strong statement. And it implies a certain knowledge of God's will that I don't think that Paul had in mind when he said, we see through a glass darkly. And I don't think it has, it, it has to do with what he said in Romans 12, I think, about uh, transforming our minds, using our minds. Uh, so I'm confused by a statement like that.
3: Would you extend that, Grace, to McCain's platform as well?
1: Uh, I don't see anything in McCain's platform that is a strategic difference. Generally, I don't have a problem. I mean, he would say that he wants the same thing. We disagree at how to get there. And so I don't know that Jesus would make comments on strategies. I think the big values like he wants us to love our neighbor, I think he wants us to do what we can to reduce poverty, I think he wants us to do what we can to promote peace, but i don 't know that I read in the New Testament specific strategies that he would endorse as the only way to do that.
3: I, I guess the reason I, I, I frame that I have maybe a little more sympathy for what you 're saying, but Uh, But I also share their concern, the danger of of blasphemy, which is being so confident on a particular policy. But I would say that whoever you, I would make the following provocation that one should, as a Christian, feel some unease about aspects of platform, of either platform, that is to say that there, One should have a certain amount of discomfort. Uh, But that's also true if you are a non-Christian. That's also true if you're an atheist or or, uh, from another faith. That is, we do not get the luxury of electing someone who is exactly shares every single one of our policy preferences. Uh, And whether those policy preferences are grounded in our political view or in our expertise or in our uh, uh, faith uh, claims, we're going to have to make compromises, uh, I think, in, in making uh, political arguments, or, sorry, in making political choices, which is why the, an- the Anabaptist tradition, it's interesting, I don't think we have an Anabaptist uh, here, um, but, but that, that tradition sort of said for that reason, because of that necessary compromise, you should opt out of the political system. I think you have to make some compromises on policy choices, and whoever you vote for, you're going to make some compromises. I'm not sure that you will be voting for someone who has a I – I don't think either the candidate has as a central pillar of their campaign a position that is antithetical to the claims of Christ. I, I, at least I don't see that, although it's possible that I'm missing it.
2: Just briefly, politics is not finding a, a, an enormous number of, shall we say, upwards of 150 million people who exactly agree with you and, and then sorting it out with them. Politics is exactly about finding 300 million people who probably don't agree with you and finding a way to get along with them. And the church is the same. Uh, uh, you know, it's important to make the point that church is really about learning to get along with people who are different from you, not finding a bunch of people the same as you and making it therefore very straightforward. Um, Somewhat of a similar
5: question, and forgive me if you feel it's been answered. I was in a bookstore recently and came across a title that said, uh, how would God vote why the Bible commands you to be a conservative? (laughs) (coughs) And my question is, do you believe that leading or leading your life based on the tenets of the Bible and
1: Christianity, do they guide your political affiliation or ideology, or does your ideology guide your religious beliefs, or are they mutually exclusive?
3: That book was probably right next to the book on god 's politics by Jim Wallace <laughs> the, uh, at
8: least
3: at least for me my my faith claims are prior uh, I want them to be i that that 's my public claim to you. so if you can identify a political position that I hold that is inconsistent with my faith claim, my hope is that I will adjust my political position and not my faith claim. Uh, so that's a pretty high standard that, that I'm setting for myself and I know I fall short of it on a, on a number of occasions. I think I fall short of it less in the area of policies and more in the areas of implementation and especially in the areas of arguing with my friends like Paula and that stuff in the faculty lounge. But, <laughs> but. I go back to my earlier point about holding policy, uh, principles tightly and the policies lightly. I mean that the I think it, it will be hard to find a strong connection, as Ambassador Joseph said, between a religious principle and then a particular policy, whether the capital gains tax should be raised or lowered or whatever. I think Christians can disagree on that. Uh, One, some of those Christians are wrong, but they're not wrong in a faith-claim way. They're wrong in a policy way, which is a much less significant, at least to me as a Christian, a much less significant error to make.
1: I I would just add that whether I'm a Republican or a Democrat, I would fight for the same values. So it really doesn't matter in that regard. I, I think I would join the party where there were more people fighting for those same values. Rather than on the basis of whether or not anybody was more Christian than the other.
8: Just
0: to return to one of the prompts that um, we received from Pathways in in putting the panel together, I think in both questions, part of what is is implied is the complication of thinking about politics in terms of party politics and electoral politics, and having that having a monopoly on what we think about. Our political commitments and convictions and persuasions to be, we're faced seriously with the choice every every other year and then every fourth year for the presidency of making essentially an A or B choice. And I think many of us probably find that part, maybe the larger part of us, is represented by A, but some part of us might actually also be reflected in B. Um, And um, as Peter said, one one faith tradition response is to opt out. Another is to effect necessary compromises. But a third is also to expand the boundaries of what we understand the political to be, um, that we constantly remind ourselves that our, um, our political being is not exclusively a matter of our, and perhaps it should be minimally, a matter of our party affiliation uh, and our electoral voting counts.
8: We've been largely sticking to the political and social issues. I would like to bring up the economic tenet of any presidential <laughs> campaign. Um, and in the... Uh, New Testament, we see a rich man come up to Jesus and say, you know, I've done everything I can, what more do I need to do? And Jesus says, give up all of your wealth. (laughs) Additionally, when Jesus comes and calls people to follow him, he says, follow me now. No, you can't go run to your family and talk to them. No, you you can't settle your affairs. Follow me now. Yet, it seems very often the Christian argument with the economic aspect is, first make a lot of money, then go follow Jesus, and I, and I think this came to a, um, and so it almost seems like this came to a head in the end of the 19th century, I want to say, 1896, I think. Uh, a, pip, a papal encyclical um, entitled Rerum Novarum, where it called upon all Christians, Catholics specifically, but all Christians to embrace a Christian socialist philosophy, which I believe would be give up all your things now. Old Testament, New Testament, relatively give up, you know, give up everything you have to the poor, Um, and so I would, and I think that that would be probably the number one way not to be elected president, and so I would ask you how we can um, justify a capitalist system which necessitates a poor, necessitates a lower class that we say they will bring the rest of us up, when indeed, according to the Bible, we are in, we are supposed to be bringing them up.
3: Sam, don't you have several sermons canned on this subject?
2: Um, yeah, if you'll give me the next 20 minutes, I'll uh, <laughs> talk you through that one. Uh, just just briefly, historically, you can look at three models. You can look in the Middle Ages. There were two rival models, one that was based on Acts 2. The disciples had everything in common, the last section of Acts chapter 2, uh, uh, which focused on the sharing of goods. Um, but often communities that shared goods with one another actually became very robust and very strong economically, and the Benedictines uh, most obviously represented that tradition. Arguably, the Amish do to some extent today. they are actually become very rich by sharing their goods with one another. Uh, The second tradition would be the the tradition coming from the rich young ruler, and Jesus' response to the rich young ruler, uh, go, sell all you have, give to the poor, and come, follow me. And that would be St. Francis and the the Franciscan mendicant tradition. And if you like, you can see those two rival... um, religious traditions in the Middle Ages as representing those two strands coming out of the Bible. Now, what happened in the Reformation is that very significant figures came along and said not only was this too difficult, but it actually wasn't necessary. And what emerged particularly through John Wesley was the, uh, the notion of the, um, the steward. Now, there's, in, in Tyndale's 1534 translation of the Bible, the word steward only appears once. However, in the 19th century, it completely took over American theology based on one, one rendition of the Bible, beginning of Luke chapter 16, the story of the what's sometimes called the dishonest steward. However, the dishonest steward turns out to be rather different than Wesley and other people's rendition um, because uh, Wesley offered the most wonderful version of the steward uh, who regarded themselves as no more than the first among the poor that they must attend to and saw that their job was to attend only to necessities and not to luxuries. However, that stewardship tradition changed so that by the end of the 19th century, the time you were referring to, the notion that you should actually care where how your money was made in order to become this rich philanthropist had disappeared. Hence, we get uh, the guy that founded this university. Um, So, uh, I won't be saying that in my Founder's Day sermon (laughs) on, on, on Sunday. Um, so the question is whether that in role fact, of he the steward. you never said it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know what what's happened there is the philanthropy and the benefactor role as a steward re- is retained, but the actual uh, concern for justice about how you know how the money was made has disappeared. Um, the question is, I think, for Christians in America today, is whether we we're content with that notion of the steward, and if we if we stick with the notion of the steward, which I to point out it's problematic but it's hard to replace because it's so lodged in the consciousness of certainly of mainline christianity in this country uh that um, uh, that we restore the notion that's there in the, in the original stewardship parable luke chapter 16 uh that generosity is the best investment now generosity is the best investment is a very problematic political platform we i mean peter's very concerned about whether we'll be elected as a good christian uh, i'm doubtful whether that's the right question but but uh but generosity is the best investment is, is bound to be problematic. However, arguably, this 700 zillion uh, plan that's going, you know, that is or isn't going through Congress at the moment is a kind of corporate generosity. Uh, and so you know, that seems to me to be an extraordinary example of where, when all is lost, we might find a kind of scriptural principle we hadn't felt we needed when all was going, going well. Do you think
1: there's Look. generosity?
2: Well, we can, we, can um, <laughs> we can argue that. Let, let me yeah. just
1: comment on the, the original question. I, uh, I spent 14 years as a spokesperson for benevolent wealth, and I struggled very much with that question. And where I came out was I was much more concerned about how the individual accumulated that wealth and how they used <laughs> that wealth rather than just being anti-wealth. And even some of the folks who use it for philanthropy were originally robber barons who exploited their workers to achieve that money. And so I could not praise them just because of their generosity, because I had to balance that against how they accumulated what they were giving away. But my point would be is I think one ought to be concerned in terms of wealth, not whether there are some people who are wealthy, but how those people use their wealth and what is the role of the state in ensuring that there is some equity in the distribution of wealth.
0: We have uh, 10 minutes, so uh, if you ask a question, and I'm going to give five minutes to the panel to, to each question, and we will conclude on time.
9: All right, um, this is related kind of to what we talked about in the last question. But um, we haven't talked about a lot of specific policy issues in this discussion. Um, but I think it's interesting. Some people on the panel seem to hold the world view that it's not appropriate to use the government to sort of enforce private religious judgments about social behavior. Is, it is legitimate to sort of use your religious convictions to um, to inspire some general sort of vision of, for instance, poverty reduction. or universal health care or some specific sort of more economic related policy platform. And so while I'm sort of a central left person and I would agree with the policy platform that's generated, it seems to me that that whole philosophy is sort of under motivated. Since both um, government, um, government legislation to sort of enforce a social vision and government legislation to enforce sort of an economic sort of poverty reduction vision, et cetera, involve some degree of coercion, it's not clear to me in a way it's Appropriate to have um, religious-sponsored sort of coercion in terms of um, social matters um, deriving from religious conviction, but it's not appropriate or it is appropriate to have government-sponsored um, coercion saying like um, that you have to sort of fulfill the Bible's dictates on helping the poor through the means of the government. Um, so it's not clear why the government should allow people to pursue their private morality on in one case and sort of enforce the idea of this public morality, of economic morality in the other. And I just sort of see that there's some kind of contradiction there. And although I agree with the policy prescriptions that it creates, I don't see how um, that can be justified that consistently using this religious basis.
1: Let's let Let's be clear, for me at least. I keep going back to the preamble of the Constitution, where the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union to establish, et cetera, et cetera. And that talks about four values. And those are the ones that I've been talking about. And those are the ones I promote. Those are the ones I work for. Now, I've got some other things I believe as part of my personal value system, but I'm not trying to do that within the the nation state. But I am, and those are not just that I am trying to promote the social values of my faith. I am trying to get the nation to live in accordance with the values it affirms as the national values. That's what I'm saying.
3: Yeah, and and relatedly, I. I i I'm thinking of two examples. Uh, President Bush, the current President's uh, emergency plan for AIDS relief for Africa, a stunningly generous transformational uh, plan to uh, improve uh, access to uh, antiretrovirals in Africa, and then his malaria initiative, both of which were highly coercive in the sense that you're talking about, which is taking funds from (laughs) Americans and shipping it abroad doubling the amount of development aid over what uh, the, uh, President Clinton had done. They w- that was inspired in part and by the President's personal faith and by the actions of uh, very devout evangelical Christians on the President's staff. They played a critical role in accelerating those programs. Uh, and so th- the genesis of it, if you're writing the history of it, the genesis would have a faith component to it. But the president sold that on broader, uh, sold that to Congress and sold it to the public on by broader appeals. First, an appeal to a, a general American value of "to whom much is given, much is expected," so a general value of generosity that, although it has a biblical verse associated with it, is perhaps part of the civic religion. And then on practical national security grounds, having to do with the dangers of failed states and the. Failed states as incubators of, of global instability. So, when you're making an, a, a coercive move like that, you have to persuade a variety of people, and you use a variety of arguments to do that, even though in that case the, the president's generosity had probably a faith origin to it.
0: The sick final question.
10: All right. Uh, Much criticism
5: was uh, thrown in the direction of Barack Obama as a result of the comments made by his pastor, Reverend Jeremiah Wright. So my question is, are we correct in holding a politician uh, responsible for the comments or lessons taught at his or her place of worship?
1: That's that's a very good place to end. most of the people who were commenting didn't really understand the nature of a black church. I mean, people join not just because of what the minister says or who he is. They join because it's a caring community that has a prophetic tradition. And I would say that in those instances, the prophetic tradition is at least equal to the priestly tradition and not behind it. And so it's one thing to be a member of a caring community that has, as part of its way of being, supporting you as one who's marginalized to live in the world that marginalizes you. And so there is, in this community, something that's much stronger than what the minister says. And so I don't think we ought to hold anybody responsible for the what the minister says because they are a Christian and they want to be a part of a caring Christian community and i think that's the important thing and it's a mistake to to, to look at what a minister says and say i i will judge you by what that minister said
5: of course we also know that there's another dimension to this uh,
1: you know going on there's a subtext i
5: mentioned the subtext earlier there's a subtext to the subtext right and so the subtext of the subtext is, on the one hand, what Jeremiah Wright said, but on the other hand, the way in which what Jeremiah, Mar- Jeremiah Wright said was used as a cipher to interpret and position Barack Obama in a certain way within the political space and discourse, right? to, to try and decode his acceptability as a good president or not, vis-a-vis his relationship with his pastor. And so th- I think there are many ways and levels and angles on the Jeremiah Wright phenomenon. Part of it is what Jeremiah Wright said himself. Um, but the other part of it is the degree to which Jeremiah Wright becomes like a kind of cipher, a stand-in, a placeholder for Barack, a way in which to test um, and assess his own fittingness for being a good president. Or actually even to attest and assess the other side of our question, is he a good Christian too? Right, so the question is, he a good Christian, gets refracted and interpreted in light of, can he be a good president? And the hinge between the two
1: is Jeremiah Wright. The language used by the prophets in the Old Testaments in denouncing society, denouncing its leaders, was sometimes so strong that people did not simply see them as angry. They saw them as representatives of an angry God. That's the prophetic tradition. Right. And, 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 I'm sorry.
4: Paul, no, 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 no. I was just going to add that—that that it's the angry black man, you know, which you didn't say, but that's what you were saying. saying. But it's the angry black man right. that um, they're trying to you conjure. Know, conjure. Right. Right. Exactly. Um,
5: and, and then one one last final point as well is, and this goes to um, what Ambassador Joseph was saying, that the, the 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 black church in America, in many respects, represents the excess, the overabundance, right? It it represents um, that that wing, shall we say, of 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 American Christianity, that refused to meld completely Christianity with the discourse of the nation, especially when Christianity and the discourse of the nation was precisely a Christian political expression that tended towards their bondage. And so when you hear Jeremiah Wright speaks, he's speaking out of the tradition that actually is pulling those two apart so as to call the nation back to itself.
3: Why did Barack Obama denounce what Jeremiah Wright said. Then, in light of what you all said, why didn't he? Why didn't he take the position you just took to say this is good prophetic uh, language, Old Testament, biblical?
1: The, the nation was not in a mood for an objective discourse, and so he wasn't about to put his political future on trying to educate the nation, and so he just thought he'd better cut, cut his losses.
4: Let me let me just say I think there was a turning point, and I actually watched Jeremiah Wright's um, National Press Club mm-hmm. um, yeah, performance, and his <laughs> original statement that he read, if he'd stopped there, I think he would have been okay because before that Obama was essentially saying, you know, this is you know, the same thing that you know I don't agree with everything he said, but it
3: was well, he that. he was also saying I didn't hear him say. It.
4: Right. But it was that second part of the question and answer where he just, it was almost, it was just really over the top. And it was the kind Got of thing wild. where he put he put Obama in a position of having to say that you kind of endorse this kind of second type of behavior mm-hmm. that you saw or to essentially say, you know, this is not the person that I have known for 20 years. This is somebody, somebody different. Because it was, yeah. it was a performance.
5: It was over the top, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there is some, some um, sort of um, subterranean conversation, shall we say, about whether um, even Jeremiah Wright was quite intentional in pushing that limit like that to actually force Obama saying this, this is, you know, some, some of the, You know, um, non-public conversation. Mm -hmm. Was he actually pushing this so that, for Barack Obama, so to to speak, political sake, to actually force his hand to sever himself from what Jeremiah had been figured within the social space to represent, in order to give you know um, Barack Obama um, the possibility of actually advancing forward, as you say, so that he could become president. Mm -hmm. Certain things he he's got to do and be seen in a certain way to actually get there.
0: I'd like to um, thank the panel, I'd like to thank the organizers um, for creating um, this occasion for us. And I'd like to thank you um, for being here, um, for the thoughtfulness of your questions, um, and uh, just an open encouragement uh, from all of us uh, to continue uh, to inhabit uh, their complexity, um, not just uh, on an evening, um, but uh, as you think uh, and live uh, within this republic or the other uh, national spaces to which you belong. But my thanks, uh, again, finally to the panel. We're very grateful for your time and participation.
10: And I'd like to again offer my thanks to the panel and my thanks to you all for coming out and joining us tonight. I'm the director of the Pathways Program. My name is Keith Daniel. And if this kind of conversation um, you found to be stimulating as much as I did, we want to invite you to sign up to be on our list serve and to find out more about how these conversations are taking place, not only in public space like this, but also in the house that we, um, we inhabit with uh, our Lilly Fellows and Lilly Scholars on West Chapel Hill Street around the dinner table. Um, there's also dean's dialogues that are, that are also engage with the question of how do we do good. The next dean's dialogue is scheduled for October 30th at 12 o'clock. And it's going to be with Dean Jones of the Divinity School. Um, And the theme on the table for those dialogues is how do we learn to live lives of consequence and to do good from a variety of different disciplines. Again, we are so um, grateful for you to come out tonight and spend this much time with us. And again, if you want more of these kinds of conversations, just check out our website. Um, Brochures have also been made available. You can get in touch with myself or Mark Storsley, who is our Lilly Scholars Program Coordinator. Um, and he helps usher a group of students that are Lily scholars in these kinds of conversations ongoing. Thank you again, and good night. Go in peace.